You're listening to Body of Work, and I'm Hannah Mooney, here to bring you stories of movers and shakers in the sports, fitness, health, and food industries who are known for their bodies. Each episode is a chance to dive into the backgrounds of my guests to discuss how their views on their bodies, athleticism, self-esteem, and more have shaped the person they are today. Many of these stories are those of success, but we don't only focus on the bodies they have. More importantly, we focus on what made them. What was the work it took to get there? And what was the mindset to stay great? Motivation matters most. And so what motivates the people we admire most to stick with the things that make them great? Well, find out here. None of my guests just have a body. They put in the work for all of it. So I'm on the line today with Kirstie Ennis. Kirstie, welcome. Thanks. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, no problem. I, you know, for me, the first time I read about you was actually in the 2017 body issue of ESPN. So there's a lot to unpack between then and now. But more than anything, I wanted to bring up the fact that you won the Pat Tillman Award at the ESPYs last week. So tell me about that. Yeah, well, um, obviously a tremendous honor um, in my eyes, and and I'm sure many, many others, you know, Pat Tillman is, you know, an American hero um, and sports legend, obviously, like, he had a voice, he had a backbone to, to do do something for the greater good, you know, to make a difference in the world, and, um, you know, obviously he left the NFL, um, definitely, you know, had a huge, huge future, and and football, and he, you know, he went with his heart, and he went with his gut, and he joined the military. And to me, that just speaks volumes, and his behavior that everybody should aspire to emulate. So to be celebrated alongside him and his memory and his family and his loved ones, um, that was huge. And hands down, um, I mean, just the biggest award that I could ever even fathom uh, receiving. Uh, it was, <laughs> um, I mean, I guess actually at the award show, it was just an insane environment. Um, to have that many people around there, around me, and then their energy just pulling for me and rooting for me and believing in everything that I'm doing, um, it was just quite the experience. Unlike anything that I've ever done, you know, uh, I, I will dare to say that it trumped Everest, so. <laughs> no way. Yeah, uh, pretty pretty wild. <laughs> yeah, that's nuts. So the Pat Tillman Award for Service is you know, for people who know Pat Tillman's story, like you just described, like he's a, a man of honor. Um, can you tell me a little bit about why you specifically won that award? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess there's there's a handful of reasons, I guess, as, as to how I could relate to his story. I mean, I obviously served six years in the United States Marine Corps as a helicopter door gunner and airframes mechanic. And on my last deployment to Afghanistan, um, my helicopter went down and I sustained some pretty severe injuries. And I like to say, unfortunately, but fortunately, I received a medical retirement from the Marine Corps. And um, the day that I got out of the Marine Corps, I decided that I was going to continue to serve people uh, just in a different capacity. You know, obviously, I can't go out and protect people that can't be protected anymore. But that's not a reason um, to believe that I can't go out and continue to help people in different ways. And so the moment I got out of the Marine Corps, I decided that I was going to commit to um, service above self just in a different way. And Pat Tillman is somebody that embodied that through and through. Um, so I, you know, I've I've thought long and hard, <laughs> obviously haven't processed all of it yet. But, you know, I've thought long and hard about who he is and 
and what he's done and what he, you know, I mean, just, just all that his being is. And I'm honored to even be recognized against that. And it's somebody that I want to follow in his footsteps for a long time to come. That makes perfect sense. So when you got the phone call that you were winning this, like this is, this is a different type of award at the ESPYs where they call you in advance and they tell you and you show up and it's not you up against four people sitting in a row, all holding hands. And then one person's name gets called. So like you got a phone call saying, you know, you're winning this. What went through your head when that happened? Well, actually (laughs) it's kind of a funny story. Um, so I have been to the ESPYs, um, two other years and to be totally transparent, it is not fun for me. It is hot. It is miserable. It's the middle of July in LA, no breeze. I don't do makeup. I don't like dresses and heels, obviously with one leg and whatnot. So when the ESPN bookers called me this year, as soon as I got back home uh, from Nepal, you know, they said, Hey, we would like to invite you to the ESPYs again. And I tried to politely decline. um, And they responded that I actually had stage time. And the first thing that goes through my mind is, oh, I must have won, you know, best adaptive female or best adaptive athlete. And I instantly go back to the mentality of, well, maybe someone someone can accept it on my behalf. And, you know, I threw it out there. And then, of course, they tell me that it's actually the Pat Tillman Award. And I said, you just tell me when and where to be and I will be there. I will get on a plane in a heartbeat. Um, that award and everything that it that it stands for was, I mean, again, just the best award I could ever receive. So yeah, I, uh, if it was anything else, I probably would have wiggled my way out of it. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. You're like, I will go find a dress and maybe I'll wear flats this year, which you did, which <laughs> yeah. I really admired when I saw the photos. I was like, yeah, girl, way to go. Cause that's totally what I would do. <laughs> oh, well then you really would have loved what I did. So in 2017, after the uh, body issue came out. They invited me, obviously, to the SVs and the pre-parties, and oh, I got in so much trouble at the official SVs pre-party because I had this short little black dress on and showed up in chucks on the red carpet. <laughs> Dude, whatever. Yeah. Live your best so, life. Also, yeah. So anybody who's listening, uh, you you know, casually threw it in there, and probably because this, it absolutely does not define who you are, you know, from start to finish. But you mentioned, you know, it. It's hard to wear heels. It's hard to find an outfit when you only have one leg. So can you, when you mentioned earlier, the end of your military career, those injuries that you sustained, they were significant though. So can you tell folks who might not have the background or the biography on you kind of exactly what happened up to the level that you feel comfortable? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so on my last deployment to Afghanistan in 2012, um, you know, it was, it was honestly night and day compared to my last deployment to Afghanistan. Um, this one was a lot more engaged for me, a lot more involved, and I do I did a lot more flight operations. And about five months into that deployment, on June 23rd, 2012, it uh, should have been like any other day, any other mission. And, um, you know, we were going outbound for a combat resupply mission and to, to drop off three space-available space Army medics. And... Unfortunately, we never made it to where we were going safely. Uh, we were trying to go down to Fob Nauzad and the southern Helmand province of, of Afghanistan. And, um, you know, the last things that I, that I honestly remember was, you know, my pilots making the call that 
they weren't getting the desired outputs from the inputs that they were making on the sticks. And I heard my tail gunner call for power to basically level the nose of the aircraft um, off so that we weren't going straight for the ground anymore. And the next thing I know, I am staring at the ground on the left side of the aircraft um, in dang near free fall. And I was just counting to myself, five, four, three, two, one, mains on deck, which is what I would normally do if we were landing safely. And couldn't tell you how much longer after that, um, I opened my eyes and I could feel like shattered jaw, shattered teeth all around my mouth. Couldn't breathe. My nose was broken. Um, had severe like shooting pain through my arms, but it never really registered as to what was going on. Uh, my arms tore from their sockets and... I don't know if it was adrenaline or what it was, but I tried to pull myself up very quickly and my left leg collapsed underneath me. And um, I guess that was my first realization that I didn't know where all of my crew was and that I was obviously in a pretty severe situation with a downed aircraft um, in a combat zone. And my pilots conveniently called um, 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines from Nowzad. They came out, provided security, moved the moved the casualties, got me into the back of the lead aircraft that we were flying with, and the left door gunner of the new aircraft came up to me and said, don't close your fucking eyes because you won't open them again. And um, I just laid there and thought to myself that I wasn't going to die without seeing my little sister. And I, I guess I didn't really think I was that hurt. But by the time that they flew me from Nowzad to Camp Bastion, which is like a British Air Force base out in Afghanistan, um, my... Gunnery sergeant, my sergeant major just kind of stood there and stared at me and cried. And in that moment, I realized I was going home, that, uh, you know, my deployment was all over for me. And uh, that was really the dividing line in my life. You know, I was in that moment, I realized that I wasn't going to go back and continue the fight with my men. And I I wasn't going to be the same person. Uh, so long story short, uh, they ended up evacuating me, uh, getting me to Germany, then DC and then San Diego. And since 2012, uh, I will not say that my recovery is over by any means, but since 2012, I've had 44 surgeries, two years of speech therapy, cognitive therapy, vestibular, occupational, uh, physical, you know, mental health. Um, and the list really goes on just to get me, you know, back to being who I am now. So, uh, it's, it's been it's been quite the road, quite the journey. And, and if, you know, after I received the medical retirement due to my injuries, I really had to you know repurpose myself and re-navigate everything that I that I wanted this life to be. Well, first of all, thank you so much for telling that story, because I'm sure it's probably not the first time you've told it. But also, you know, it, all of that is just so beyond comprehension and it just makes me wonder, you know, what what would happen if I or somebody I loved was in that position? And it's just it's just unbelievable and also just shows just like the strength of the type of person you are. And, you know, seven years later, you can see all the things that you've done, even parallel to that recovery, because like you said, it's not over. You know, it's it's really interesting to me, like the strength of character that totally shows yeah. in all of the stuff that you do. And so, you know, you're the way that you talk about service is so admirable and, you know, obviously was something that was in you when you went into the military. And how old were you when you went into the military? Uh, I was actually 17 years old. <laughs> Do you have to like get permission for that? Yeah. Um, 
So if you are 17 years old, you are not considered an adult. So you actually have to have both parents' consent. Um, and I was always too smart for my own good growing up, very mischievous. Uh, I never, I was never really challenged by athletics or academics. And um, I graduated high school early at 15, enrolled in um, Pensacola Junior College in Northwest Florida, and did two years of college and found myself getting into a little bit of trouble here and there. And, you know, I, I was raised by two Marine Corps parents and knew that, that it's something that I wanted to do for a long time and decided that after I got my AA, that it was um, time to go. So yeah, four months after my 17th birthday, I went to the recruiter's office. And I'm sure <laughs> even though, even though both of your parents were in the Marines, did they like totally not dig that, that you were doing that at 17? You know, like I said, I was a jerk. So uh, my mom was, <laughs> my mom was, my mom was all about it. She was like, "Good riddance. See you later." Like quite literally, calling in the troops to like help rein in her kid. Um, but on the flip side of that, I don't know if I was, I would ever say that I was, you know, daddy's little girl by any means. But you know, my dad came home like a bat out of hell and was basically like begged me uh, just to finish my four-year degree from college and then do it. And I just looked him in the eye and said, you can sign this paper right now. Um, you know, I swear up and down that I'll do a desk job, which was a lie. Um, uh, or you can wait, you know, another eight months. I'm going to do it anyways. You know, the, the decision's on you. And by my lies and ultimately sweet talk, um, I got my way and my dad signed. And no kidding, the day that my dad dropped me off for boot camp, my recruiter let it slip that, um, I was in fact going into aviation and he let my dad know my plan and my dad did not talk to me for like 13 weeks. <laughs> of, That's a long time. Yeah. Of boot camp of all things. I was like, what do you want is, you know, a letter from home. And my dad like refused, <laughs> but he got over it and I'd like to think he's semi proud now, but yeah. So were you, were you always planning on being a door gunner? Or was that just like naturally kind of what ended up happening based on like what they needed? Uh, well, so I always wanted to do that. And I mean, I guess the easiest way to explain it is I wanted to leave then and there. Um, again, when I say I was getting into trouble, it was just stupid stuff. And I'm from a very small town in the South where it's like this vicious cycle of, you know, you get married young, you have babies young, and then you're divorced like twice by the time you're 30 or something. And I just, I don't know, the things that was going on in, in my dinky hometown, I just didn't want any part of it anymore. So, like, I knew what I wanted, and I was willing to do it by any means necessary. So when I went to the recruiter's office and went to MAPS and tested out, you know, I could I could have gotten any job in the Marine Corps, um, but I had my heart set on one day being an aerial door gunner. You know, none of those spots were open for me to go to um, that sort of school right off the bat, but I was willing to take, you know, what I could get. So I decided that I was going to be basically, um, a helicopter hydraulics mechanic and structural repair mechanic. And then that was going to be my stepping stone into being a door gunner. So I'm thinking like, gosh, there's so many like things that you could do. And you picked the Marines cause your parents were in the Marines, but you wanted to be a Marine, right? So like when you made that request, it wasn't necessarily like, oh, I'm doing this just because my parents did. Like you. Oh, <laughs> no way. Um, I mean, I guess there's obviously a little bit of an influence there, but so I'll try to make this brief. But so my mom and my dad got married 18 years old. Again, tiny town out of Florida. Dad joins the Marine Corps right off the bat. Um, nine years later, you know, I'm already born in the whole nine. 
we're living on Marine Corps Base 29 Palms in California. And my mom comes home and tells my dad, you know, I think these female Marines are, are pretty badass. And my dad looks at my mom and says, I will never be married to a female Marine. And my mom turned around, left, got an age waiver, and joined the Marine Corps. <laughs> um, That's so like, awesome. Yeah. So, like, my earliest memory is actually of, you know, watching my mom graduate boot camp, you know, on Paris Island. And my favorite T-shirt and, and you know, sweatshirt or whatever you want to call it was, I know it said, uh, my mom's a U.S. Marine. And all of my Barbies wore dress blues and these camouflage utilities. And my favorite documentary or movie as a whole was this this movie that who God knows who actually made on Marine Corps boot camp. And I came home every day from preschool, elementary school, and dang near into middle school and watched this movie. Like, I just knew that I wanted it. I just didn't know when it would actually happen. Um, and, you know, I, I always make the comment uh, that, you know, I was lucky. You know, I was raised by what I thought to be superheroes. You know, I watched these two people, my mom and my dad, get up every day and put the uniform on um, and do something that was just bigger than themselves. I knew I knew I was freaking proud um, and I wanted to give them a reason to be proud of me like I was proud of them. That's so legit. <laughs> That's so awesome. I worked or I lived rather in a household where my dad always worked in outdoor sporting. So he was the you know president of a knife company. Then he went and became the general manager of a shotgun company like he just has always been embedded in the military in some way, but he never served. So it's always been something I've been really curious about. And especially women who go into the military, I'm like, oh, my God, that is so badass. And I wish I had. I wish, you know, in some way I could understand it or talk to somebody. So this is like so cool for me. I'm so, so interested in kind of how that whole trajectory happened. But as you chose to go and you were 17, you got out then at what, 24? Yeah. Okay. And so that puts you in your early 30s now. And so the the real estate between, you know, 2012 and 2019, when did you really make the decision to go and really focus on what you're doing now, which is your foundation, which is from what I can understand, your pride and joy. So when, yeah. did, when, did, when did that happen? Was that 2018? And how did that come to be? Yeah, well, so um, gosh, I'll, I'll rewind a bunch on you really, but so in 2013, when I was still in the hospital, still inpatient, laying in this crazy hospital room um, at Naval Medical Center San Diego, some representatives from an organization called Disabled Sports USA came in and said, hey, how do you feel about learning a winter sport? And obviously being from Florida, I'm like, what the fuck is winter and what, the, what, what is <laughs> snow, you know? Um, but in that moment, I was like, you know what, whatever, just teach me something, get me out of this hospital room. And, um, you know, how to get medical waivers and have doctors sign off for a bunch of stuff. And my doctors ended up, you know, clearing me to sit ski. Well, when I arrived in Breckenridge, Colorado, um, to be totally honest, no one asked me for a medical clearance. Uh, they just looked at me and said, hey, well, what do you want to learn? <laughs> so, of course, in my mind, I say the cool thing and say snowboarding. Well, sure, it was painful, a little nerve wracking, you know, all of the above. But um, I ended up picking it up really quickly and I loved it you know I loved a sport that represented my independence you know no one could do it for me I was raised on team sports softball volleyball basketball um, and to find something where it was like no this is all on you you know sure a ski lift can get you up to the top but you have to figure out how you're going to get yourself down 
Um, and that, and I just, I fueled myself on that, you know, it represented my resiliency and, and, and quite literally getting back up on my own two feet again. And I'm not too sure what all you actually know about my, um, my recovery, but I fought for a long time to save what was left of my leg. And, um, I, I, you know, I continued to, I started competing alongside Team USA and I competed through 2014, 15. And in the winter of 2015, I actually got really sick, caught MRSA during a revision surgery. And uh, I was told on December 23rd, 2015, that I needed to tell my family goodbye because I wouldn't be alive for Christmas. And, um, oh my God. To which point, <laughs> yeah. But to which point they ended up cutting off more and more of my leg. And they looked at me and said, hey, uh, we're going to have to take your hip. And I told them that if they have to take my hip, don't wake me up again. So when I woke up on Christmas of 2015 and I still had my hip and I had what was left in my leg, um, I was obviously counting my blessings. But, of course, that meant that I was going to lose snowboarding for that season. So I lost snowboarding and I started exploring like what was left in the mountains, you know, something that wasn't as high of an impact. And I decided that I was going to try my hand at, you know, hiking and mountaineering and fell in love with it. I absolutely adored it and decided that I was going to, you know, set the goal to climb the highest point in Africa called Kilimanjaro alongside a nonprofit called the Water Boys. And uh, we were raising money for the East Tanzanians. When it was all said and done, I summited, you know, pat on my back. I felt good. It was awesome. More importantly, we raised $150,000 for clean water. That was when the light bulb went off. I realized that I could still go out and I could still be, A, the person that I wanted to be, but I could go out and, and, and tackle anything that I wanted to. You know, the things that everybody else said was going to be impossible, I could go out and show them that it was possible. And even bigger than that, I could go out and do it with heart and with purpose and with passion. And so <laughs> right after the Africa trip, I decided that I was going to to go forth and climb the highest peak on each of the seven continents. You know, I was already one down with Africa. So <laughs> why not? And, you know, continue and do it in um, in other countries. And that's I mean, honestly, climbing Kilimanjaro was the beginning of the best years of my life. Um, in 2017, I climbed the highest point, Oceana, to help raise money and awareness for the Heroes Project. In 2018, I climbed Denali, the highest point in North America for Building Homes for Heroes. In September of 2018, climbed the highest point in Europe uh, for a nonprofit called Glam, Glam for Good. And um, right about that time, I realized that I needed, I needed to do something to legitimize what I was doing. And using some very just successful people, but also people that I consider dear friends, I created a board um, who helped me establish the Kirstinus Foundation. You know, it's 100% volunteer-based. Uh, all we do is, you know, we go forth and financially support other deserving nonprofits and provide education, opportunity, and healing in the outdoors. And uh, we hit the ground running. <laughs> um, and in 2019, I became the first female amputee to ever summit the highest point outside of the Himalayas, which is down in Argentina, uh, called Aconcagua. And uh, that was really my, again, my springboard into Everest. Um, and so I spent all of April and May out in Nepal uh, climbing the south side of Everest, um, all in support of my foundation and, of course, the, non the nonprofits that we support. That is nuts. <laughs> That's, that is crazy. So when, okay, so Everest was the most recent. 
And so at this point, are you at, I was trying to count while you were talking. Are you at <laughs> five? No, I'm at four, sadly. Okay, four. <laughs> I, yeah, I actually have to go back for Denali uh, this year. It's planned for May, actually. <laughs> Got it. Okay, so yeah. you're at four. So tell me, what was what is one word that you would use to describe climbing Everest? Oh, man. Uh, crazy? <laughs> no. Um, I don't know. I mean, Everest has so many different elements to it. I mean, I guess it would just be empowering because, you know, the climb itself teaches you so much, obviously, about yourself. But just going out there and being submerged into a culture that is obviously nothing like what we have here in America um, and to see their struggles and to see what they do and why they do it and why they're involved in mountaineering in comparison to why I'm mountaineering. Um, it's just a very special place. Um, you know, being out there in the mountains alone, not even climbing, not even, you know, interacting with the people, just the magnitude and the presence. Like you realize how small you are. You realize that your problems don't matter out there. I mean, and it is the, the most like <laughs> insanely humbling experience. Did you train for it? Yeah. I mean, okay. so Everest has been, um, it's been a work in progress. Obviously, you know, Everest is like this crazy pinnacle. I mean, to be totally honest, uh, I have obviously one leg. Things are a lot harder for me. They are extremely painful for me. Um, but to me, it was the biggest platform that I could really you know, show the world that anything is possible if you're willing to work for it. Um, and so with the, su the seven summits, these different mountains have all taught me something. So for the last couple of years, whether I summited or not, um, these different countries and these d different mountains have taught me everything from, you know, endurance to glacier travel, to being a good winter camper, to patience for myself and the other mountaineers. Like it's all been building blocks to get to Everest, which is, I mean, that's the pinnacle. It's the highest point in the world. Um, and, you know, I just really want, like, maybe it's stereotypical, I don't know. But I, I wanted to get there, and I wanted to make a statement. So I've worked really hard. <laughs> I have, I put everything into it. You know, my life savings, obviously years of my life training. I make my own prosthetics for crying out loud. I weld them. You know, I have put so much in um, into getting to Everest that that it was. It was something that's just, I, I don't know, I can't even explain it. But short answer is yes, I trained my ass off. <laughs> Well, yeah, no, no one just casually goes out and is like, I'm going to go climb Mount Everest. All right. <laughs> so you had a, you had a, and pardon me if I pronounce it wrong. Is it a crampon? Yeah. So it's like a metal foot with spikes in it. Yep. It looks super badass. Yeah. Kind of looks, yeah. Kind of looks like you could cause some damage with it really, but yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say like <laughs> that, that would be like, you would not want to get impaled with that at all. Um, so you made a comment earlier. So you grew up in Florida and you were like, fuck this. I hate cold weather. I grew up in Portland. So all I really know is rain, but I'm not a, you know, I'm not a fan of cold weather either. So tell me about that. Like, is that something, somebody in all these mountains, that's like a very different climate kind of mentally, how, how did you make the transition of like, this really blows, this is not an environment that I enjoy competing in a sport? Like what switched for you? On that? Oh, no, we'll see, that's one thing where we're backwards on. So I hate the heat, hate it, want nothing to do with it. Um, what? Okay. I will never move back to Florida. Uh, I run very, very hot now. 
So um, I'll make sure and send you a handful of photos, too, of some of my uh, alpine climbs. I'm in a tank top climbing. Um, there's a bunch of different theories as to why, but seen all of my family in Florida asked if I was going to come home um, after I got out of the Marine Corps, and I wanted nothing to do with it. I run hot now, insanely hot. And I'd already fallen in love with the snow and big mountains and, and all things alpine sports. So I decided to make Colorado home. So I moved to Colorado, had no friends, no family, <laughs> nothing. Um, I mean, obviously I'm happy here, but ironically out on Everest, I, you know, I'm in a tank top half the time and I am in my summit suit, like 200 meters from the top of Everest, sweating, wanting to rip this thing off. Um, my doctors have always said it's because my brain still thinks my leg is there. So I create the same amount of blood, um, but I haven't figured it out yet. Ever since I lost my leg, I am hot. <laughs> that is so, bodies are so weird. That is so interesting. <laughs> I mean, that's really fascinating. I feel like I'd teed you up exactly to say the opposite of what I was asking about. But that's, <laughs> that, I mean, that's so cool because that's something that you probably would have never known if you hadn't got into hiking. You know what I mean? Like it's kind of kind of seems a little serendipitous that you would find a sport that you love so much that also makes your body feel as comfortable as it is. So, so you said the next mountain is going back to Denali. Yeah. Round two. (laughs) So that's, is that next May? Yeah. So I'll be out. uh, I actually just confirmed the dates this morning. So I will be out in Alaska, May 11th through June 1st, 2020. Mm -hmm. Right on. So now I'm super curious, like having gone through all of this, having gone through the initial crash back in 2012, going through the recovery for the last seven years, finding really your passion and your heart for this sport and also for helping people, even though that was kind of already there and never really left. What do you think got you to the point to where you were talking earlier about how it just kind of was never an option to give up? Um, and where do you think that that came from? Like, is that, have you been like that your whole life or was it this, you know, particular change in your life that spurred that or just tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, no. So, um, honestly, I wanted to give up, um, what's called my alive day. So the anniversary of me getting hurt in Afghanistan, my very first alive day, I decided that I wanted to throw on the towel. I wanted nothing more with life. We'll just put it that way. Luckily, I had a very unsuccessful attempt and woke up in the hospital the next day. And my dad came to me and said, you've got to be shitting me. You know, the enemy couldn't kill you and you're going to do it for him. And that's kind of when the the light bulb went off. I realized that, and I mean this to no offense to anybody out there that might be listening, but I realized I was being fucking selfish. I realized that I was one of the lucky ones that came home. You know, I came home. Broken, sure, but I came home. You know, I was still alive. I still had a family. I still had experiences and, you know, God willing, another maybe 50, 60 years left in me. And my dad saying that made me realize that there's men and women in the cabin overhead that never made it home. There's families of, you know, of those people that are looking to me as, in some cases, some of the the last person to see their loved one alive. And I realized that I was taking my life granted I mean even even though the things that I've been through have been extremely painful mentally physically and emotionally you know there's people here 
that are watching me, you know, whether it's the people that gave me life or siblings or friends or Maroons or whoever, there are still people here that are watching me that need me, that love me. And I decided that I was going to turn it around and it didn't happen overnight by any means. I mean, it's, it's been, uh, you know, through hell and high water. And if I had to give advice really to anybody out there that might be listening, I mean, I, you know, the mantra that I've lived by, since the my you know my first alive day is it's the six inches between your ears and what's behind your rib cage that dictate what you're capable of so if you keep your head and your heart in the right place you can you can overcome anything physically I hope that's how I answered your question (laughs) I love that I love that I think you know I think there's a lot of people everybody does you know what they do for different reasons you know the people that I have on on here and that I spend a lot of time talking to in my personal life is really about creating the story of your life that really like makes you proud. And, you know, the thing that drives you is like very unique to you. So you as Kirsty or me as Hannah have very different stories that keep us, um, you know, motivated or moving forward. But the last thing that I would want to do is be on here talking about, oh, yeah, I just pop out of bed every morning and I go do my workout or I'd never, ever struggle with motivation or, you know, discipline. Just, you know, I woke up and I just had it like that's not a thing. And, you know, the the priority here when I'm talking to people is really like, tell me about like like life blows sometimes like that's not the point. <laughs> the point the point is that like shit gets really hard and you have an opportunity to like make choices every day on how you respond to how hard life is. Cause it doesn't really care what happened to you or not. And I think from all the work that you're doing, I mean, it just the way that you talk about it and the, the energy that you bring to it, like the amount of people that I, th- I think just feel really hopeless in terms of like, what's my contribution? What can I really do? And like how, you know, special, everybody is and like what strengths they bring to the table. I don't think a lot of people spend a lot of time thinking like, God, I'm so valuable and this is how, and this is how I can't wait to contribute to the rest of the world. And, you know, the work that you've done in your foundation is a testament to, you know, what you specifically have done. But I think it's really important to tell stories like that because the amount of people that just haven't been able to tease out of like who they are, what kind of value they can bring to the world, I think is like a huge missed opportunity. And I think the biggest waste of a resource that we have in the world is human potential. So, you know, I've, I really appreciate you sharing that because I know that, you know, probably the, the beginning of that recovery process was probably miserable, you know, and you, and you made a choice and your dad with his comment is not wrong, but also like makes perfect sense why you would feel like that. So I just really appreciate the candor. Yeah. Well, I mean, and to piggyback off of what you were saying, I mean, being vulnerable, being willing to try being, you know, (laughs) being willing to put yourself out there and make the effort, it's difficult. Um, And I think one of the biggest things that I've learned, especially from the mountains, you know, I'm not perfect. I've made mistakes. I've had to turn around. You know, I'm in a doctorate, you know, level program right now. I've screwed up and I've failed classes, you know, but I think in all of it, the biggest thing is I've just tried, you know, just try. (laughs) If you can't try for yourself, try for the people that love you and care about you. You know, whether that's something as big as, you know, making it another day or even something as small as, 
you know, just sitting down and doing your homework. And I think it's, I think it's huge for people to embrace failure. Uh, those are the things that, that really could, you know, they can catapult you into the best years of your life. And that's where I'm at now. You know, I, you know, I got hurt in Afghanistan and while I'm proud of what I did in the Marine Corps, you know, I tried to sneak out. I tried to get, get, get away from this life and I failed. And you know what? Thank God I failed because now look at my life. I've been through hell. It's been miserable. It's been shit. I get up every morning and it sucks, <laughs> but you get up and you try. That's it. Just try. Yeah, just try. I love that. So tell me what's, you know, I, we know what's going on next May, you know, you're going back to Denali, but between now and then kind of what's next? Like what's, what do you see for the future of the foundation? Is there any like goal that you'd love to crush outside of the seven summits? I know I just gave you like four questions all at the same time, <laughs> but just, yeah. just talk to me about that. Yeah. All good. Um, well, so actually in September, I go down to Ecuador to climb in Cotopaxi and that's actually in support of a project called, uh, the range of motion project and we're bringing recycled prosthetics down to underserved populations and in third world countries. But outside of climbing, um, I actually aspire to do seven, seven marathons, seven continents, seven days. Uh, I want to do the great divide ride, which is basically a 2,600 mile bike ride that splits the continental U S um, and then I also want to swim the English channel <laughs> to piggyback off of a couple of other projects that I've done over in the UK. So busy. <laughs> yeah. So like you already thought about this. <laughs> yes. A lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's awesome. I, you know, more than anything, I just really appreciate you coming on here and being one, just so candid. Um, I think like this, this project for me is so fun because I talk to real people who I just am so blown away by all the time. Um, and every time I get off an interview, I'm always like, I want to go work out with this person um, because <laughs> it just gives me so much, um, you know, so much hope and so much motivation too. you know, um, I think the the superhuman component of what, you know, you're trying to do with the summits and with, um, you know, your athletics um, is re a really good proof point that like you can, anybody can do anything. It's just a matter of whether you try or not. And so I just, I really appreciate you coming on here. I think it's so timely too, because I reached out to you um, about two weeks before I found out that you were going to be winning the Tillman award. And my fiance called me at work. And normally when he calls me, I'm like, Oh my God, is everything okay? Cause right. we'll text, we'll email or whatever. And, um, he was like, babe, Kirstie Ennis is winning the Tillman Award at the ESPYs. This is a big fucking deal. And <laughs> I remember I remember thinking to myself, because I told him the, the whole um, beginning of the podcast came from the 2016 body issue. I had wanted to do something. I wanted to do a blog and go and do my own version of the body issue with a local photographer friend of mine. And I wanted to do it about athletes in DC that were, you know, people with full-time jobs, but that were just unreal. And I wanted to kind of recreate it myself and it evolved into what is now the body of work podcast. And so in 2017, when I saw your story, I was like, that would fit perfectly. So two years later, <laughs> super exciting to be able to talk to you. Very cool. Well, thank you so much. I really do. I appreciate that. Uh, it means a lot to me. And 
And yeah, I'm glad it all worked out the way that it did. Yeah. Well, hey, so tell everyone if they want to follow you, what's what's your foundation site? Is there a place that we can find you on, you know, social media? Yeah. So it's super easy. I mean, any of my blogs from my climbs or even just to see what we're up to with the foundation, feel free to check us out at kirstianisfoundation.com. And then, of course, we have social media for the foundation and myself. Instagram and Facebook, Kirstianis Foundation, and then Instagram and Facebook and Twitter is just Kirstianis. Great. Well, thank you so much. This was so awesome. Yeah, no, likewise. I, I really appreciate you guys having me. So there you have it. Another amazing story from someone committed to what they know will make them the best version of themselves. It's not magic and it's not superhuman power, but it's also not rocket science. To do the work, you have to want to do it. So tell me, What's your mindset? Talk to me about it on Instagram at Body of Work Podcasts, all one word. Till next time, let's get to it.